Please pray with me one more time. Almighty God, as we heard just a moment ago, that it pleased you to crush your son. To crush your son who had no sin, no deceit was found on him. No lawlessness, no wrongdoing, no impure thoughts, no impure emotions. But you crushed him to save us. For this we are humbled. For this we are thankful. And I pray now that you would open my mouth, that you may feed your people with the truth of your word, that your son may be lifted up, that you may be glorified. In his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, good evening. Truly is a joy to be with you tonight and to think about Good Friday with you. Most of my comments tonight will come out of Romans chapters 5 and 6. And so if you have your Bible, you'll be helped if you open them up to Romans 5 and 6. If you want to use the pew Bible provided for you in the pew back in front of you, it can be found on page 942, page 942 in your pew Bible. Well, Good Friday is strange. Good Friday is mysterious. Good Friday is scandalous. Now, why is Good Friday strange? It's a holiday. But is it a celebration? It's the day on the annual calendar we mark to remember the death of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. A moment so frightful, as we just heard read to us, that it was covered in deep, dark eclipse. The earth quaked. The temple veil was ripped top to bottom. It is certainly a day worth remembering. But a celebration? It's also strange because what do, you, what do you say to people on Good Friday? Happy Good Friday? Merry Good Friday? Have a good, good Friday? I've never heard any of these things. And it commemorates such a terrible event as the crucifixion of the Lord of the universe. Why is it good? Why do we call it Good Friday? And therein, the strangeness turns to a mystery. That one man's death could have consequence for all people across the globe and across time, going down 2,000 years and counting. How many people have died in the world from the beginning of time? And yet this one man, his death has consequence for all of us. Consider these words from Romans 5, 18 and following. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Just as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 
The first man in these verses is Adam, our first father. His first trespass, his first violation of the law has rendered all of his posterity guilty, for we are in Adam. Moreover, he's passed on to us a sinful nature, whereby, were Adam's sins not enough, we piled them on, our own sinfulness. But the second man, the man in verse 18 who does the one act of righteousness, verse 19, the one man's obedience is, of course, Jesus Christ. Because he is the only man in the history of humanity to live a sinless life to live a perfect life, to never transgress in word or thought or deed or emotion, a perfect sinless life. And the act of righteousness that he performs in verse 18 is to voluntarily give his life up for his people. The wages of sin is death. And this is why the world is riddled with death. But make no mistake about it. When Jesus died, he was not dying for his own sins. He was paying down the wages of his people's sins. He was dying for their sins. Even as, again, we already read in Isaiah 53.10, it says that the Lord, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why would the Lord crush his son, his only son, his beloved son? Because again, in Isaiah 53, we read, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord was pleased to lay on him the iniquity of us all. This is the great substitution. The death that we deserve to die, Jesus dies. And the life that he alone deserves to live, he is given to us. In short, Paul says elsewhere, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And therein, the mystery turns into a scandal. It's a scandal. Because everything you do in your life, you have to earn. You earn your money, you earn your grades, you earn your reputation. But the one thing that is more important, infinitely more important than money, grades, and reputation is the eternal state of your soul. You're standing before God as either sinful or righteous. And that is entirely unearned. It's the one man's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. His act of obedience is transferred to you free of charge. By grace alone, through faith alone. It's so free. It's dangerously free. It's dangerously free. Because you know the reaction of the human heart. You've surely had this reaction in your own heart. That if... God forgives me based on Jesus' perfect righteousness, then why can't I just continue to sin all the more? He's going to forgive me anyway. In fact, 
the more I sin, the more grace abounds. So maybe I should just live my life to the fullest of my sinful heart's content, and then, oh, Jesus will just forgive me. And some people treat Jesus that way. In fact, that's a serious criticism that Muslims and Jews lay at Christians' feet. Where are the guardrails? Who's to stop them from living like the devil? Because as soon as they sin, oh, Jesus will just forgive them. Paul anticipates this question. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if you have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So verse 1 provides the question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? And verses 2 through 8 then provide the answer. The answer is, that's just simply not the attitude of Christians. Because Christians, when Jesus died, you died too. Isn't that what Paul's saying? That there is a theological covenantal union with Jesus made by God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says it is through God that we are in Christ. Other translations say God is the one who united us to Christ. And so in God's eyes, he judges us and views us and treats us through Christ. Everything is mediated through Christ, including the way God considers us and the reality of who we are. And this passage says that on Good Friday, we don't only commemorate the death of Jesus. We commemorate our own deaths. Do you see that there? Look at verse 2. We who died to sin. Equally verse 4. Just, uh, I'm sorry, verse 4. We were baptized therefore with him into death. Also verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his. And then verse 6 as well. We know that our old self was crucified with him. When God thinks of his people, he never thinks of them in the abstract. He only thinks of them in communion and union with Christ. The language of union with Christ is all over this passage. 
Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him. Verse 5. We have been united to him. We shall certainly be united to him in his resurrection. Our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Christ. The language of union and communion and oneness with Christ is all over this passage. And Paul's encouraging us to think of ourselves, therefore, the way God thinks of us. In union with Christ. And so when he died, our old selves, our selves that are enslaved to sin, were put to death. And then equally, just as Jesus is raised from the dead, so too new beings are brought forth. It is through Jesus' resurrection, in other words, that a new power is released on the world to create in us new hearts, to cause us to be born again. And so what's radical about Good Friday is that in Jesus' death, we died, and on Easter, we too were raised. A new world began for people in Christ to inhabit in a new way and to live by a new power. Not by the power of the old, sinful, selfish heart that wants to sin and get away with it. But a new heart, regenerated and brought alive by the resurrection of Christ. So tightly are we united to him that when it speaks here of being baptized, verse 3, it's not that water baptism. It's not baptism into water, though there are ramifications that we understand from this. Rather, what does it say? It says baptism into Christ, put into Christ, and therefore baptized into his death, whereby we will also be raised to a new life with him. As it says in verse 8, we believe now that we also will live with him. In other words, the reason God saved you is not merely to forgive you of your sins, but also to create in you a new heart that desires to live in a new way by the power of the resurrected Jesus. And that's what it means in verse 8, to live with him. That is current, that is present. It is a life lived by the power infused by the resurrected Lord himself. And so verse 12 brings us to the conclusion. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Christian, can you say that sin does not reign, rule, and tyrannize your mortal body? Can you genuinely say that you have been set free from sin because your old self was crucified with Christ and you now live in the power of the resurrection. That's what the Bible says about you. That's what's true, therefore. And so the injunction tonight is simply this. Be who you are. Be who you are. If God says you are dead to sin through the crucifixion of Christ, that Good Friday is the day you died as well, your old sinful self died as well, and you've been brought to life with Christ, then live that way. Do not succumb to the temptations 
that beset you so easily. Unbelievers, you are invited to participate in this death and resurrection as well. Everyone is born with a sinful nature. The idea of free will is a myth. It's an illusion. You are controlled and you are swayed. You are motivated and moved by sin all the time. This passage says you can be set free. You can be set free. All who repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ is because the Spirit has baptized them into Christ, crucified their old self, and brought them to life with Jesus. One of my favorite books is Victor Hugo's 1862, sorry, Les Mis. You've probably seen the play or the movie or the other movie or the other movie. <laughs> and the main character's name is Jean Valjean. And he's a convict. He's been arrested for stealing and he'd been in prison for close to two decades. And he's a hardened man because of the kind of uh, uh, treatment that he had in prison and the life and the circumstances that he experienced in prison. But now he's let out. He's let out, but he's still destitute. He's got no money, he's got nowhere to go, he's got no family, he's got no friends, he doesn't know where to go, he doesn't know what to do. So he's wandering the town on his first night out of prison, and he's knocking on doors to let him in, and no one will let him in. And so he goes from house to house, basically begging for a place to stay on, on that night. Finally, one bishop lets him in lets him into the house. And Jean Valjean warns him. He says, I'm a dangerous man. Nobody else will let me in. Are you sure you want to let me in? The bishop says, this is the house of God. There is redemption. There is grace. There is forgiveness. We have hope in humanity. And he lets him in. And so Jean Valjean goes to bed that night and he can't sleep. He wakes up like every hour. Thinking about what a terrible person he is. And the violence and the hatred and the temptations that are still in his heart. And he simply can't sleep. He goes in and out of sleep, each time waking up, berating himself and ridiculing himself for a waste of a life that he's had. Until finally at two in the morning, he wakes up. He's had enough of this uh, self-castigating that he's doing. And he simply says, I'm going to do what I, I'm going to act on instinct. I'm going to do what I just know to do. And so he steals the silver plates from the bishop's house and he makes a run for it in the night. The next morning, the police bring him back to the bishop. And this is what the bishop says as he stands there. Ah, there you are, he said, looking toward Jean Valjean. And I'm glad to see you. But I gave you the candlesticks also, which are silver like the rest and would bring you 200 francs. Why did you not take them also with the plates? Jean Valjean opened his eyes and looked at the bishop with an expression which no human tongue could describe. Monseigneur, said the brigadier, then what this man said was true? We met him, he was going like a man who was running away, and we arrested him in order to see, and he had this silver. And he told you, interrupted the bishop with a smile, that it had been given to him by an old priest with whom he had passed the night. I see it all. And you brought him back here. It's all been a mistake. If that is so, said the brigadier, then we can let him go. Certainly, replied the bishop. 
My friend, turning to Jean Valjean, said the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks. Take them. Jean Valjean was trembling in every limb, and he took the candlesticks mechanically and with a wild appearance. Jean Valjean felt like a man who was about to faint. The bishop approached him and said in a low voice, forget not, never forget, that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of this promise, stood there confounded. The bishop had laid much stress upon these words as he uttered them. He continued solemnly, Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdrew you from the dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I have given you back to God. The silver is, of course, a symbol for Jesus. And that when Jesus saves people, he doesn't simply forgive them of their sins, but gives them a new heart. And the rest of the book is about how Jean Valjean protects people who work for him and a girl and a young man, and he comes to give his life for others. He is truly a changed man in that moment. It's not just a transaction where Jesus substitutes himself and that's the end of it. It's also a crucifying of our old selves on the cross, whereby three days later, just as Jesus is raised from the dead, we too are raised up with them. A mysterious, but according to God's word, very true reality. Is Good Friday strange? Maybe. Is it mysterious? Certainly. Is it scandalous? Only if you ignore Romans 6. But above all, of course, it's good. It's good because, as we've said many times, God was pleased to crush him because God also knew he would raise him and that he would crush us as well, our old sinful natures, and raise up with Jesus new people, a new humanity to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Again, Lord Jesus, we are humbled by your self-giving act of righteousness, your self-giving obedience, the chastisement that is ours, that belongs to us, was on you. And now, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to your cross we cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul we all to the fountain fly. Wash us, Savior, or we die. We commemorate and we remember, yes, indeed, we celebrate on this night your death because you invite us into the grave with you.
to bring us out to newness of life. For this you are worthy of our praise, of our lives, of our devotion, and our worship. So in your name we pray. Amen and amen.